From New York, this is Democracy Now! The figures announced by Mr. Shibukati are null and void and must be quashed by a court of law. In our view, there's neither a legally and validly declared winner nor a president elect. Kenya is facing a political crisis after last week's presidential election. The apparent runner up refuses to concede as more than half the country's electoral commission resigns to protest how the votes were counted. We'll go to Nairobi for the latest. Then to the occupied West Bank, where Israeli forces have raided the offices of seven Palestinian civil society groups. Amala Israeli forces escalated their repressive tactics against Palestinian human rights organizations, including our organization Defense for Children International Palestine, raiding our office, confiscating material and uh, attaching a uh, military order, informing us that our office is now closed uh, due to Israel uh, listing us as a, an unlawful organization, also known as a terrorist organization under Israeli law. We'll speak to members of two Palestinian groups raided Thursday, then no tech for ICE. We'll look at why a coalition of immigrant rights groups are suing the data broker LexisNexis for selling personal data to U.S. immigration authorities. Locally and also nationally, organizations fighting for immigrant justice, for racial justice, for privacy rights, and against criminalization are saying no tech for ICE, no data for ICE. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russia's rejected a call by the United Nations to create a demilitarized zone around the Russian-controlled Zaporizhia nuclear power station as fighting threatens Europe's largest nuclear plant. Russia's foreign ministry Thursday called the Russian army's occupation of the site in southeastern Ukraine a guarantee against a Chernobyl scenario, a reference to the 1986 nuclear catastrophe in northern Ukraine. Russia's rejection of the deal follows Thursday's visit by U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres to Lviv in western Ukraine, where he met with the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Guterres said fighting by Russia and Ukraine near the plant risks a worldwide nuclear disaster. Military equipment and personnel should be withdrawn from the plant. Further deployment of forces or equipment to the site must be avoided. The area needs to be demilitarized. And we must tell it as it is. Any potential damage to Zaporizhia is suicide. Today, the U.N. Secretary General is visiting the coastal city of Odessa to inspect grain shipments after a U.N.-Turkey broker deal guaranteed safe passage to Ukrainian ships in the Black Sea. Here in the United States, a federal judge has given the Justice Department one week to make public parts of an affidavit used by federal agents to search Donald Trump's Florida home earlier this month. U.S. Judge Bruce Reinhart ruled Thursday portions of the affidavit should be redacted, but that it was in the interest of the public and the media to unseal the document. The affidavit will provide clues to how the FBI established probable cause in its search of Trump's mar Lago estate, where agents recovered 11 sets of classified documents, many of them marked top secret. 
federal prosecutors probing Donald Trump's role in the attack on the U.S. Capitol have sent a grand jury subpoena to the National Archives asking for all the documents are provided to the House January 6th committee. This comes amidst reports the U.S. Secret Service failed to inform Capitol Police about a threat made against Speaker Nancy Pelosi until after the January 6th attack was underway. That's according to a new report by the watchdog group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, which cited email communications between law enforcement officials around the time of the insurrection. In Texas, the elections administrator of Gillespie County and her entire staff have quit over death threats, harassment and incidents of stalking after Joe Biden's victory in 2020. Anissa Herrera told a local newspaper, quote, after the 2020 election, I was threatened. I've been stalked. I've been called out on social media. And it's just dangerous misinformation, she said. Donald Trump won the county by a 59-point margin. Here in New York, the Trump Organization's chief financial officer has pleaded guilty to 15 felony charges of tax evasion and other illicit business practices. Alan Weisselberg admitted to a judge in Lower Manhattan Thursday he unlawfully took home nearly $1.8 million in off-the-books compensation from the Trump family business over a number of years. Those rent-free perks included lease payments for a luxury car, private school tuition for his grandchildren, free use of a luxury apartment overlooking Central Park. Under terms of a plea deal, Weisselberg has agreed to testify as a prosecution witness against the Trump Organization when it goes on trial in October. However, he did not agree to directly implicate Donald Trump or members of the Trump family. Weisselberg was sentenced to five months at New York's notorious Rikers Island jail, where he's expected to spend as little as 100 days behind bars. To date, more than two dozen people from Trump's inner circle have been imprisoned or face criminal indictment. In climate news, China's deployed cloud-seeding airplanes over drought-stricken parts of the country as hundreds of millions of people endure China's longest heat wave on record. This week, China's Ministry of Water Resources ordered planes to drop silver iodide into the clouds over Hubei province, where prolonged heat has damaged crops and led parts of the Yangtze River to run dry. Similar scenes are playing out along rivers in Europe, including the Rhine, the Danube and the Loire in western France, where this week residents visited dry riverbeds that are normally covered with meters of water. It makes me sad. It makes me sad because I grew up in the village and I've never seen the Loire like that. Before, we could go to the water holes over there with the children and fish because the water was not too hot yet. Now when we go, it's just algae and frogs. All the fish died of the heat or were eaten by the herons. The low river levels have impacted France's 56 nuclear plants, many of which rely on river water to keep their reactors cool. This week, French officials granted an exemption to environmental laws to allow nuclear plants to discharge hot water into already warming local rivers. This comes as Europe's glaciers are experiencing their worst summer melt season on record. Scientists with the European Commission say this summer's extreme drought could be the continent's worst in 500 years. 
Here in New York, police arrested 10 climate campaigners Thursday as they held a peaceful sit-in protest inside the Manhattan offices of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The activists are demanding Schumer and other Democratic leaders reverse fossil fuel-friendly concessions in the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act. One provision added to win the support of West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin fast-tracks approval of the Mountain Valley fracked gas pipeline. Another side deal limits public input on major new infrastructure projects while weakening environmental review procedures. This is activist Gigi Neeson of the group No North Brooklyn Pipeline. Making side deals to advance your political agenda with Joe Manchin, who takes more fossil fuel money than any member of Congress. Yeah, it's undemocratic, unjust, and racist because it'll take public voices out of the decision-making process, especially those from Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. The Biden administration says it allowed 1.8 million doses of monkeypox vaccine to the U.S. supply as it struggles to contain the largest ever outbreak of the viral disease outside Africa. Last week, the Food and Drug Administration approved a plan to stretch the vaccine supply by administering one-fifth of a normal dose per patient. Critics say there's limited data showing whether the strategy will be effective. The U.S. leads the world in confirmed monkeypox cases with over 14,000, more than a third of the worldwide total, though disease experts say the true number of infections is likely far higher. Public health data show black men have been disproportionately affected by monkeypox, but are receiving the vaccine at much lower rates than other groups. This comes after the head of the Centers for Disease Control is announcing a sweeping reorganization of the CDC. Dr. Rochelle Walensky acknowledged failures in the CDC's response to COVID-19 and promise better communication with researchers and the public. This week, the Biden administration signaled it will stop buying COVID-19 vaccines, treatments and tests as early as this fall. White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha spoke at an event sponsored by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation. Getting us out of that acute emergency phase where the U.S. government is buying the vaccines, buying the treatments, buying the diagnostic tests. We need to get out of that business over the long run. And so my hope is that in 2023, um, you're going to see the commercialization of almost all of these products. Some of it is actually going to begin this fall. In Colorado, a grand jury is investigating a Denver police shooting that left at least seven people injured in July. Recently released body cam footage revealed new details of the chaos that unfolded. Denver police had reportedly previously omitted to report key facts from earlier descriptions of the shooting, including that the man they were pursuing, 21-year-old Jordan Wadi, was throwing away his handgun when police shot him anyway, and that Wadi had raised his hands when police first approached him. Six bystanders who were standing nearby were also wounded. In Tennessee, a federal judge has ordered the coffee giant Starbucks to offer to rehire seven workers who were fired after they led a campaign to unionize a store in Memphis. Since Starbucks workers in Buffalo organized the chain's first U.S. union last year, Starbucks has faced dozens of unfair labor practice charges, including over 200 violations of federal workers' protection stemming from retaliation claims. To see our interview with union organizer Beto Sanchez, one of the Memphis Seven, go to democracynow.com. 
In Argentina, massive anti-government protests continue denouncing worsening unemployment, poverty and skyrocketing inflation and living costs. On Wednesday, thousands of workers, union members and social justice advocates took to the streets of Buenos Aires, demanding the government of President Alberto Fernandez increase living wages and do more to address the crisis. Today in Argentina, it is a privilege to eat. In other words, such a fundamental right for families, especially for many women who are heads of household. Today, they cannot even guarantee daily milk for their children. In Argentina, there are many problems. We, from the popular movements, are proposing that we have to move forward with a universal basic wage, an income that would at least put an end to indigence in Argentina. And in Mexico, a truth commission formed by President Andrés Manuel López Obrador has confirmed the involvement of federal and state authorities in the 2014 disappearance of 43 students in Ayotzinapa, calling it a high-level cover-up state crime. The commission also said there's no indication any of the students are alive. Their disappearance sparked international condemnation and mounting accusations of human rights abuses against former President Enrique Peña Nieto. The students' families for years have expressed hope. Some of them had survived, often leading protests where they chanted, you took them alive, we want them back alive. Next month will mark Ayotzinapa's eighth anniversary. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Kenya is facing a political crisis following last week's presidential election. On Monday, the chair of Kenya's election commission announced Deputy President William Ruto had won the election after winning 50.5 percent of the vote. But four of the seven members on the election commission have disavowed Ruto's victory and are critiquing how the votes were counted. The apparent runner-up, former Prime Minister Rel Odinga, has asked Kenya's Supreme Court to challenge the results. The figures announced by Mr. Shibukati are null and void and must be quashed by a court of law. In our view, there is neither a legally and validly declared winner nor a president-elect. On Thursday, U.S. Senator Chris Coons met with both presidential candidates as well as Kenya's outgoing president, Uhuru Kenyatta. Coons said he urged Kenyatta to support a, quote, peaceful transition of power. Kenyatta has not yet commented publicly about the election results. On Wednesday, the apparent president-elect, William Ruto, said he plans to move forward on forming a new government. I want to say that uh, this afternoon to ask all of us as leaders in Kenya to learn from the people of Kenya who have settled on the issues. They now want us to deliver on the commitments that we gave the people of Kenya. And I want to say to this team that we do not have the luxury of time to waste. We go now to Nairobi, Kenya, to speak with the Kenyan writer and analyst Nanjala Nyabola. Her new piece in The Nation magazine is headlined, The Kenyan Kakistocracy. What are we supposed to do when the electoral system consistently yields terrible candidates, was the headline. Nyabola is also the author of the book Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Politics in Kenya. Ebola begins by writing, quote, if you've noticed an eerie silence coming from the direction of Kenya, it's because many of us are struggling to believe that what the news is telling us has happened. 
Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Nanjala. Can you talk to a global audience now about this presidential election in Kenya and why so many are questioning the results? I think it's not so much that people are questioning the results, but people are questioning the outcome of the results. And that's an important nuance just because of the history of Kenyan elections. We've had very heavily contested elections for the last 30 years, starting in 1992. Um, and there's always been a reason to doubt the results because of interference by the Electoral Commission, by the people who are in power. And, you know, the one that the, the in round that people must might be most familiar with, the 2007 round um, that led to violence. Um, there's Elections have just always come under a cloud of uh, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, intimidation, um, the Electoral Commission not rising to the occasion. Um, results being interfered with. And so there was a great deal of expectation, really, that um, after six cycles, as I said, beginning in 1992, that the Electoral Commission might be able to deliver a result that wasn't uh, shrouded in, you know, uh, lack of understanding or lack of clarity, as it were. Um, I think at this particular point, it's not so much people that are questioning the results, although the opposition certainly is, and is well within their rights to to question the results if they, they're not satisfied with them. I think it's the disbelief that after um, all of this time, these were the options that were put before voters and that the person who actually has been declared the winner um, is a person who has such a cloudy history. Um, and what does that actually hold for the country? So can you tell us about the two men who are vying for the presidency? I mean, William Ruto has announced he's won. He's the former deputy president. He's also been indicted by the International Criminal Court. And then there's Raila Odinga, who, what, has uh, run for the presidency five times. He got 48.9 percent, apparently. William Ruto got 50.5 percent. Tell us about each person. Well, both of these men have been in politics for a long time. Um, Odinga is obviously the son of Jaramogi Oginga Odinga, who was one of the leaders of the independence movement in Kenya, was in politics since uh, 1960, and um, in many in many ways sort of seemed to have been cheated out of his uh, opportunity to rise to power by his chosen ideology. He was a socialist. Um, and at the time, in the 1960s in Africa, in the context of the Cold War and proxy wars, being a socialist was seen as an as an unacceptable politics in this part of the world. And so there is always this history of um, what would have been if Odinga had been given the chance sort of going all the way into the 1990s and Raila as his son inheriting this expectation and inheriting this idea of what could have been if Kenya had chosen a different path. On the other side of the equation, you have William Ruto, who is handpicked for power by the former president, uh, Daniel Toratichirap Moy, the late Daniel Toratichirap Moy, um, sort of groomed into politics um, from 1992 all the way until the present. Both men have been in different political parties um, in the different election cycles, sort of have switched sides from government to opposition, depending on who was in power, have never really gone head to head. In fact, we're on the same side, uh, the same ballot uh, of the ballot in 2007, we're on the same side of the election, um, had a rupture come from the uh, 2007 post-election violence and sort of have now found themselves on opposite sides. And if anything, the story of these two men really tells a story about how fluid Kenyan politics has been in the last 30 years, that it's very difficult to pin um, issues and it's very difficult to pin ideologies on individuals. And instead, what we've seen is this elite contestation between all of these groups, um, all of these individuals trying to navigate their personalities, um, trying to... Uh, sort of grasp for power around each other. Um, 
Both men certainly have a checkered political past, um, as I said, uh, both implicated in cycles of election violence, uh, different cycles of election violence, um, both implicated in very questionable political choices. Um, certainly over the last five years, we've seen um, what we call the handshake, uh, this compromise between Raila and Uhuru Kenyatta, who obviously was Ruto's boss as president, Ruto's deputy president, um, sort of forcing this realignment between these characters. And long story short is that it, there's a, a multiple levels of contestation happening here. There is obviously the personality contestation, but there's also the elite compact and the rupture of the elite compact between these two men and voters being put in a position where you have to choose uh, between people who maybe don't rise to the standards of of ethics and values that she would want in a national leader. And the fact that William Ruto has been indicted by the International Criminal Court, explain why. Well, in the 2007 election cycle uh, was probably the most hot, hotly contested election in Kenyan history. And uh, in that particular cycle, uh, Raila Odinga won uh, in terms of we had a parliamentary system, ended up with the most number of uh, members of parliament. And logically, you would assume that that would then uh, have him come out as president. Uh, instead, what happened was that there was a lot of questions with the electoral results, a very sort of uh, ham-fisted uh, effort at uh, altering the results of that particular election cycle. Um, and we end up with uh, his opponent being declared president. Um, when... That happened on December 29th of uh, 2007. The immediate outcome was people taking to the streets um, in protest and the reprisals by the police sort of leading into this very tense uh, beginning of 2008 for Kenyans. But then that sort of escalating into violence and specifically ethnic violence in different parts of the country, shutting down the country, it was the biggest political crisis in independent Kenyan history, certainly since 1982, the attempted coup of 1982. Um, and uh, when the crisis happened, the agreement was basically that between the two parties, if they didn't come together and sign a peace agreement, that they would hand over the names of the six people who they believed were most culpable for the violence, uh, Kofi Annan, who was the mediator, that he would hand over those names to the International Criminal Court. And they didn't come to an agreement in time, and Annan handed over those names to the International Criminal Court. And so we had a wave of indictment coming down, including William Ruto and former president, now former president, Uhuru Kenyatta. And so uh, it's a cloud that's been hanging over Ruto's politics since then, because um, the ICC sort of, uh, according to their assessment of the case, didn't so much annul the case as they stopped proceeding with the case because it was too dangerous for the witnesses. It was too dangerous. There was too much political interference. There was too much um, interference in the background. And that is why the ICC decided not to proceed um, with uh, that particular case. Um, and so it's it's been a cloud that's sort of stayed, hovered over Ruto's political career, but it doesn't seem to have affected his performance with certain constituencies this time around. And I think that's kind of what raises the question about what the future of Kenya is going to look like, which is... Um, the cloud hasn't gone away. It's still very much present. It's still very much an unresolved question. What does Kenya look like in the aftermath? And has the whole Trump phenomenon in the United States, the insurrection, the violence, the questioning of the election, had an effect on Kenya? 
If anything, I would say the linearity is in the other direction because a lot of the practices that we're seeing being deployed in political the political context of the United States were tried and tested and, and implemented in other parts of the world first. And sort of there's a, a reverse learning that's happening in that particular direction. I give the example in my book about Cambridge Analytica, you know, Cambridge Analytica being involved in the election of Trump and in the manipulation, sort of what we're calling the post-truth politics. Um, well, that's a company that's been active in Kenya since 2011 and was active in the 2013 election in Kenya and sort of refining its social media practices, its social media uh, messaging, framing, etc., in developing countries first before uh, deploying them in uh, developed countries and wealthier countries subsequently. Um, I think that what we're seeing when we see, for example, in uh, former President Trump threatening to run again for president and saying, you know, one of his promises is to um, uh, execute uh, drug dealers. I mean, that is a that is something that comes from Duterte in the Philippines, and that is an electoral promise that he made that he ascended into power with that populist vote uh, to execute uh, drug drug dealers in the Philippines. And so, you know, we tend to have this idea that um, things happen in the West, and then the rest of the world learns about and adapts to it. But actually, with the rise of the digital age, it's actually the inverse that populist leaders are refining these practices in countries that have a less a stringent legal context and a less stringent civic context. And once the practices are refined, they then get picked up by populist leaders in wealthier countries, um, anti-immigrant sentiments, anti-xenophobic uh, you know, sentiments, and all of these sentiments then become the weapons for populist leaders in wealthier countries. And I think what Trump has done and what the ascendance of Trump has done, really, it's that it's normalized certain rhetoric that if you want a healthy civic space, you wouldn't want that uh, rhetoric normalized. And it's created an opportunity for authoritarian, what I call authoritarian entrepreneurship, um, where people are, 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 we're seeing these alliances forming between these populist leaders because they feel like there's space for an international discourse that really wasn't tolerated um, before the ascendance of Trump. And I think we're seeing, we're going to see, unfortunately, a lot more of that happening down the road. And your term, the Kenyan cacistocracy? It's governance by the worst and governance by the most unscrupulous. And it's governance by people who most people wouldn't even be proud to associate with on a personal level, but sort of ceding the political space to them. Um, when you look at the ballot choices in Kenya, we actually had a lot of really great candidates who didn't make it onto the ballot because of the way in which the thresholds, the qualification thresholds are interpreted to disqualify people who maybe don't have the financial resources, maybe don't have the access to government, maybe don't have the you know pedigree, the, the political pedigree that the most known or the most uh, branded, well-branded candidates do, but have ideas and have policies and have a vision of how they want the country to be run. But those people don't make it onto the ballot. Mm -hmm. Instead, because we're living in this era of misinformation, disinformation, uh, branding, the you know politicians as a brand and politics as spectacle and entertainment instead of life or death decision making, it's the people who can play the brand games the best that make it onto the ballot. And to me, that's how you end up with a cacistocracy. Not the people who are the best, but the people who speak the best and who can package themselves the best. Nanjala, finally, I wanted to ask you about the drought in the Horn of Africa, where the United Nations says more than 18 million people are facing severe hunger. This includes over 4 million people living in Kenya's north. And if you can also address your view of Russia's um, war with Ukraine, uh, we just reported in headlines that the U.N. Secretary General went to Odessa to 
make sure that the grain shipments are allowed to leave the southern port. And, of course, that directly links, just a few days ago, the first uh, grain shipment to Africa was allowed out. Well, I think there's two separate things that are happening there, even though there is a connection between them. I think in terms of drought, this is the fifth failed rainy season in this region, the fifth consecutive failed rainy season in this region. And that is a question of climate change. And that is a question of compounding what was already a dry area. Uh, most of Kenya's landmass, 67% of the country's landmass is what we call arid and semi-arid. So not quite desert, but not enough rainfall for it certainly to sustain a forest or something like that. And because of this continuous, they're coming much more frequently and much shorter space in between them. The rainy seasons are failing. Food insecurity is certainly a growing problem. And we're expecting, um, if nothing changes between now and the end of the year, for example, uh, people are bracing themselves for a declaration of famine, um, certainly in Somalia, and how that will affect some of the people in the driest and the uh, most precarious regions of the country. I think with the conflict in Russia, the bigger question was people who are dependent um, not just on grain imports, but on food uh, uh, you know, it's food distributions that are coming from especially organizations like the World Health Organizations, the food aid organizations. And of course, that has implications for Somalia as well. Um, Kenya doesn't import a lot of grain from Russia or from Ukraine. Um, we do import a lot of maize, for example, from Mexico, from Uganda and from other parts of the world. More broadly, it's food insecurity in the world sort of affecting food distribution everywhere and sort of triggering a kind, a kind of race for uh, whatever meager supplies um, will come into play. I think for me personally, I'm more concerned or not more concerned, but certainly concerned about the politics of it all and the politics of using food as a bargaining chip, um, international conflict. What kind of um, future are we setting ourselves up for? What kind of discourse are we setting up ourselves for if we don't actually speak out against this particular practice? Um, because unfortunately, like I, I said in my piece, the world is not in a good place. Um, and a lot of issues are going to come up in the next five years. And if we can't get the kind of leadership that prevents this kind of uh, strong arming and, and um, use of food in, in the conflict context, what are we setting? What kind of future are we setting ourselves up for? Nanjala Nyabolo, we want to thank you so much for being with us, writer, political analyst, speaking to us from Nairobi, Kenya. We'll link to your piece in The Nation, The Kenyan Kakistocracy. What are we supposed to do when the electoral system consistently yields terrible candidates? She's the author of Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Politics in Kenya. Coming up, we go to the occupied West Bank, where Israeli forces have raided the offices of seven Palestinian civil society groups. Stay with us.
Kenyan singer Susanna Oweo. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli forces raided and closed the offices of seven Palestinian civil society groups in the occupied West Bank Thursday. Several of the groups report soldiers confiscated items and files before leaving behind notices declaring the groups unlawful. Israel designated six out of the seven groups as terrorist organizations last year, a decision met with criticism from both the United Nations and international human rights groups. Groups raided on Thursday include the human rights organization Al-Haq, the Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, the Bissan Center for Research and Development, Defense for Children International Palestine, the Union of Agricultural Workers Committees and the Union of Palestine women's committees. Israel's crackdown on Palestinian civil society groups has been condemned across the globe. The Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights condemned Thursday's raids, stating, quote, Israel's disturbing designation of these organizations as terrorist organizations has not been accompanied by any public, concrete and credible evidence, they said. Amnesty International also condemned Israel's actions and praised the Palestinian groups targeted. One Amnesty official said, quote, these organizations have contributed enormously to human rights in the occupied Palestinian territories and across the globe, yet Israeli army boots trample all over their work, Amnesty said. Thursday's raids came 100 days after Israeli forces shot dead Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh as she covered an Israeli military raid on the Janine refugee camp. The Israeli raid also came as the United Nations has condemned Israel for killing 19 children in recent weeks in Gaza and the occupied West Bank. We're joined now by members of two of the Palestinian groups raided Thursday. Brad Parker's with us, senior advisor for policy and advocacy at Defense for Children International Palestine, one of the groups criminalized by Israel. He's based here in the United States. And joining us from Ramallah is Sahar Francis, general director at Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association. Sahar Francis, let's begin with you. Describe for us what took place on Thursday. Hello. And actually, yesterday we waked up for the terrible news that the Israeli occupation forces raided uh, Ramallah city and they uh, entered and uh, to the Palestinian seven uh, organizations and they confiscated property uh, and messed the files and broke uh, furniture and they sealed the doors. Uh, of these seven organizations in order to enforce the closure of physically closing all the seven organizations and to implement actually what the military uh, uh, advi- the military commander authorized last year that these seven organizations are illegal organizations and they are not supposed to continue their essential work that we continued actually to implement in the last uh, couple of months uh, uh, to offer the services the usual usual important service that we do for prisoners, for children, 
for women, for farmers, for patients, and to protect human rights in general, to document all these violations, as you described in your introduction, uh, that takes place on daily basis on the occupied territories, and to uh, uh, advocate and uh, uh, lobby around these uh, war crimes in order to seek accountability. And Brad Parker, can you describe what happened to Defense for Children International Palestine? Uh, so early morning, around uh, 5.30 a.m. yesterday, uh, Israeli forces, there's around 100 soldiers outside of our office um, from the CCTV footage inside the office, you know, dozens of soldiers inside, um, sort of rooting through desks, files, uh, removing a photocopier, printer, computer, um, client files of, of files of the children that we represent um, in the Israeli military courts. Um, you know, as Sahar said, they sealed our door, so physically welded shut the door with um, metal and then taped a notice to the door um, ordering the closure of the office and essentially um, shutting down or attempting to shut down our activities. Um, now, this follows last year uh, the designation of six Palestinian human rights groups by the Israeli government as terrorists, including both of yours, Defense for Children International and Sahar, your group, Adamir. Um, uh, among those that condemn this, uh, United Nations, foreign ministries of Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain and Sweden. Sahar Francis, what has this meant for your organization. Of course, uh, this Israeli step aimed to silence us and to prevent us from, uh, uh, as I said, offering the services we do and the documentation of the violations. And this support of the international community, whether from the UN side or the diplomatic uh, side, all these states that you named, it just came to confirm our uh, uh, respected work and the professionalism that we are employing implementing our work end. And the fact that all the secret information that Israel claimed that it's the base for their decision, uh, uh, this is a proof that this information wasn't sufficient and these countries didn't, uh, uh, were not convinced actually that this is a base for the Israeli allegation. And this is why they continued to support us and they issued their statement. So we believe that the Israeli action yesterday came as an answer for such a statement and the rejection from these states for the Israeli allegations. So, in, in fact, actually, yesterday, Israel sent a message that we are the masters, we are uh, uh, the ones who controls in the occupied territory and decides who could continue or uh, not in, in uh, the uh, reality on the ground. Um, in July, Democratic Congress member Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts and 21 other Congress members sent a letter to the Biden administration demanding public rejection of the Israeli delegation of Palestinian human rights groups as terrorist groups by Israeli authorities. The lawmakers wrote in part, quote, a reported lack of evidence to support this decision raises concerns um, 
that it may be a deeply repressive measure designed to criminalize and silence prominent and essential Palestinian human rights organizations. The U.S. must always and consistently speak out against efforts by all countries attempting to undermine civil society and the necessary work of humanitarian organizations, unquote. Um, Brad Parker, has there been any response from the Biden administration? Not as of yet. Um, and I think the Biden administration has been pretty silent um, on the designations and the attempts to criminalize Palestinian civil society over the past 10 months. Um, the usual sort of rhetoric is that they're reviewing the information that the Israeli authorities have provided, um, but they haven't sort of taken a position one way or the other. That was uh, maybe new, with some nuance uh, adjusted slightly yesterday, saying that um, the State Department spokesperson noted that the information so far doesn't suggest that the U.S. would change their position, even though that position has never been articulated um, in an expressway. So maybe that's an opening. But I think it's also important that, you know, over the past 10 months, you know, the, the, the conduct by Israeli authorities to criminalize us and criminalize our work is really part of a years-long campaign to delegitimize and, and essentially criminalize the work that we do to expose grave violations against Palestinians at the hands of Israeli forces and, and, and the work that we do to hold Israeli officials accountable, whether it's at the International Criminal Court um, or you know the lobbying work that we do globally with, with various governments. So I think the you know, the letter from Representative Presley and, you know, combined with the various uh, European governments, um, United Nations officials coming out consistently to condemn uh, these repressive tactics by the Israeli government to criminalize our work uh, says everything that people should know, um, that, you know, we are researchers, we are social workers, we are lawyers um, working to highlight the human impact of Israeli policies and Israeli oppression on Palestinians living in occupied Palestinian territory. Earlier this week, the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, the former Chilean president, expressed alarm over the number of Palestinian children killed recently by Israel. Over the past 10 days, Israeli forces have killed 19 Palestinian children, 17 in Gaza and two in the occupied West Bank. In a statement, President Bachelet said, quote, inflicting hurt on any child during the course of conflict is deeply disturbing. The killing and maiming of so many children this year is unconscionable, she said. Now, earlier this week, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported that an internal Israeli military report has acknowledged that an Israeli airstrike near the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza killed five Palestinian children August 7th. The youngest child was four years old. During Israel's recent assault on Gaza, Israeli officials repeatedly denied killing Palestinian children. This is Karen Hajoff, the international spokesperson for the Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, speaking August 6th. Tonight, Islamic Jihad terrorists fired a rocket towards Israel, which fell short inside Gaza, hitting a Palestinian home in the Jabalia neighborhood and tragically killing at least four children. There is video documenting the entire thing. There was no Israeli activity in the Gaza Strip, in that area or at that time. Islamic Jihad is killing Palestinian children in Gaza. 
Brad Parker, you are with uh, Defense for Children International. Your response? So what we've seen over the past 10 years or more is that Israeli forces routinely carry out uh, attacks in densely populated civilian and residential areas where children bear the brunt uh, of those attacks. Um, over the past year um, so far, in 2022, we've documented uh, 20 Palestinian children uh, shot dead by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank. Um, we documented 17 Palestinian kids killed um, during the latest round of uh, Israeli military offensive in Gaza. Uh, we continue to, to investigate a, a number of those cases, but um, the case referenced here uh, in the, the cemetery in, in Jabalia is attributed to Israeli forces. Um, and it, it, it really is a, a pattern that we see consistently going back, uh, as I said, uh, more than 10 years where um, Israeli forces uh, attack and use explosive weapons, targeted strikes, weapon, uh, drone strikes, um, where there's complete disregard for international humanitarian law and the rules of war for who can be targeted. Um, and, and we constantly are documenting cases of uh, Israeli forces killing Palestinian children, um, whether excessive use of force, disproportionate use of force, or intentionally targeting civilians, including children, um, that amount to war crimes and, and just complete disregard for international law. Sahar Francis, um, your general director, at Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association. Um, you recently were denied boarding in Israel for a flight that was transiting through the United States to a meeting you were trying to attend in Mexico. Do you have any information about why you were barred? Are you on some kind of blacklist? Actually, this is, was very shocking at that time when I was banned boarding to the uh, airplane without even explaining to me in real time why I was not uh, allowed while I had a valid visa to the United States uh, till April 23. And then uh, I tried to figure why, uh, why I was banned, actually. And several uh, months after, just uh, in June, I get a response uh, that my visa was canceled. Again, without explaining actually why uh, my visa was uh, cancelled, uh, and uh, I think it's totally related to the fact uh, that what we are facing as an organization, uh, uh, the allegations from the Israeli side, and actually the silence of the uh, U.S. on the uh, official uh, position against this uh, designation of the organizations could be one of the reasons for such practices against the individuals, against myself, against other colleagues, that they would be banned travel outside of the occupied territories or other harassment and threatens and intimidations that we can face as human rights uh, defenders because of this uh, Israeli attack against the organizations. Um, earlier this month, the European Union, with a majority vote, decided to unfreeze up to $215 million in funds for the six Palestinian groups, like Adamir, um, that had been designated by Israel as terrorists, though so many countries in the United Nations have condemned this designation. Um, do you know what's happening with this money? 
Actually, Domir specifically, we are not uh, getting uh, direct fund from this uh, fund, but I would believe that the commission with the local office of the EU would be responsible for maintaining and continuing the projects that uh, uh, some of the six organizations were involved on because uh, it's really there's uh, no basis, no clear evidences against the organizations that can justify what was uh, the freezing the projects that were implemented and it was much politicized from the side of the EU at the first point to uh, suspend the projects with these organizations. Uh, Finally, your organization is currently working to stop administrative detention, which enables the Israeli government to detain anyone based on secret information. How many people are held in this condition? And will the fact that the Israeli military raided your offices, where you have your legal cases, does that compromise the work you can do? Definitely, it will compromise the kind of legal services that we can offer for the administrative detainees and for the other uh, Palestinian political prisoners we are representing in front of the military courts, the Israeli military courts. Uh, Currently, there's around 700 administrative detainees. Uh, Some of them, they are children. Some, they are sick people that they need uh, urgent health treatment while in administrative detention. And at least one person, Khalil Awadi, he's in more than 150 days of a hunger strike and their immediate threat to his life, where Domir, where in the last couple of days with the uh, support of the other colleagues from the human rights organizations uh, 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 issuing urgent appeal to release him and trying to lobby on his behalf to be released under these circumstances. Sarah Francis, I want to thank you for being with us. General Director at Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, speaking to us from Ramallah, from the occupied West Bank. And Brad Parker of Defense for Children International Palestine, both groups raided by Israeli forces on Thursday. Next up, No Tech for ICE, a coalition of immigrant rights groups, is suing LexisNexis for selling personal data to U.S. immigration authorities. Stay with us. We belong together by Los Lobos. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. A coalition of immigrant justice groups have sued the data broker LexisNexis for collecting detailed personal information on millions of people, then selling it to governmental entities, including ICE—that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement. 
The lawsuit alleges LexisNexis has created a massive surveillance state with files on almost every adult U.S. consumer and describes how law enforcement officers can surveil and track people based on information these officers would not in many cases otherwise be able to obtain without a subpoena, court order, or other legal process. The groups also accuse ICE of using information collected by LexisNexis to circumvent local policies in sanctuary cities. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit include Organized Communities Against Deportations, Just Futures Law, and Mi Gente. And for more, we are joined by Cynthia Rodriguez, the national organizer with Mi Gente. She's joining us from Chicago. Can you lay out this lawsuit and the significance of filing it where you are in the state of Illinois, Cynthia? Thank you so much, Amy, and thank you so much for having us. So Mi Gente joins this lawsuit filed by Just Futures Law, by Legal Action Chicago, alongside our friends at OCAD and the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. Because as you shared, LexisNexis is collecting and selling the data of more than 276 million people across the country, particularly using their accurate product. And here in Illinois, we want to bring light to how this violates privacy and consumer rights, how it's at odds with Illinois consumer protection and common law. Because what we're really talking about is one of the biggest data brokers in the world, LexisNexis, and how they're getting rich off of the backs of community members by aggregating and selling our personal information that can then lead to detention and deportations. And I want to share that here in Cook County, Illinois, we are talking about various organizing and legal efforts that are happening to put a data broker like LexisNexis on notice. This lawsuit also follows an important hearing last month. Last month, the Cook County commissioners, spearheaded by Commissioner Alma Anaya, held the first hearing of its kind that we know of in the country that was investigating the local repercussions of this LexisNexis contract that we're talking about, of this $22.1 million contract. So investigating the local impact of this contract, of ICE contracts with other data brokers, is really important. And so during this hearing last month, the county had an opportunity to hear public testimony, uh, witnesses, expert witnesses that spoke about digital loopholes for sanctuary cities. I wanted to go, Cynthia, to the Cook County meeting you were talking about, the recent hearing on the repercussions of ICE contracting third-party data brokers like LexisNexis, the Cook County Board of Commissioners hearing from immigrant justice advocates and community members like Michelle Garcia, a member of the Illinois Coalition of Immigrant and Refugee Rights and Access Living. She said she used LexisNexis to search her own records and found dozens of pages of personal information on herself— family members, even other people who lived in her same apartment complex. This is what she said. LexisNexis collected 43 pages of information about me, my family, and my acquaintances. It was extremely disturbing, scary, and overwhelming to see everything in writing that they have collected about my life as a Cook County resident. This information being in the hands of a third party like LexisNexis and then potentially in the hands of ICE, puts my loved ones and other community members at risk. I have the privilege of uh, citizenship, but if I were one of millions of undocumented people living in the U.S., 
ICE could find me within a matter of hours by searching through a report like mine. ICE is still free, has free reign to go after anyone they believe is deportable. So that's Michelle Garcia, member of the Illinois Coalition. Um, how does LexisNexis get this information? And, of course, it goes way beyond the immigrant community in the United States when you're talking about 250 million people. Um, what are LexisNexis products? What are people using that tracks them? That's right. I think one way that you can think about LexisNexis is a one-stop shop. They're a one-stop shop for data points like addresses, phone numbers, license plate information, your social media information, but also things like medical history, credit scores. Uh, Michelle also spoke during the press conference about having information on her neighbors, right? The list can go on and on. And so we want to be clear that here we're talking about mass surveillance. Tabs are being kept as you're sharing on immigrant communities, communities of color, on protesters. And at the end of the day, this is affecting us all because this is happening without consent, it's happening without people knowing, without a warrant or a subpoena or a court order. And I also want to share that this is all really informed by research, right? We saw a Freedom of Information Act request earlier this year that revealed how nationally ICE agents ran over 1.2 million searches in the LexisNexis database over a seventh-month period. And it's really important to understand that these searches are happening through ERO, Enforcement and Removal Operations, which is the division of ICE that focuses on arrests. And as you've shared, I live here in Cook County in the Chicagoland area, where the local Chicago field office ran, just themselves, ran over 13,000 of these searches. Um, no Tech for ICE uh, immigrant justice advocates first exposed the multimillion dollar contract between LexisNexis and ICE in Colorado through a FOIA that revealed the corporation was giving ICE access to real-time jail booking data from sheriff's offices in the state of Colorado. Explain the significance of this and why it puts so many people in danger. Definitely. So before Cook County held this hearing, Colorado was the first place where we're seeing that it was named publicly by community that ICE is circumventing local sanctuary protections by contracting with data brokers such as LexisNexis. So folks from the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition and other organizations in Colorado and Mijenta joined these groups to expose an ICE contract from July 2021 that confirmed what we had been seeing and hearing, right? And so this was breaking news because in this contract language, it is explicitly stated that ICE is contracting with data brokers like LexisNexis to go around sanctuary protections. And this is happening through LexisNexis aggregation of public and commercial data, and also, as you mentioned, real-time jail data. For many years, right, people have fought really hard and organized for sanctuary and welcoming protections, these policies that prohibit or seek to prohibit information sharing and cooperation between law enforcement and ICE. But now we have this $22.1 million contract with LexisNexis that is providing backdoor access to people's information and going against the spirit of sanctuary protections. So Colorado was the first place to speak up about this. We have five seconds. The county. And we know that local organizing is going to continue to close these digital loopholes that make it easier for ICE to detain and deport our people. 
And we will continue to follow this. Cynthia Rodriguez, national organizer with Mijente, working on the group's No Tech for ICE campaign. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! currently accepting applications for a people and culture manager. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.